We're talking this morning about a covenant at creation. And I want to convince you this morning that there was probably a covenant at creation, but definitely whatever happened at creation is the starting point for this story of redemption. So if we're reading the Bible on its own terms, trying to understand its story, we want to follow along with that whole story. And that story starts not with Abraham, but with Adam. So I tried to provide some critiques of dispensational theology and covenant theology, suggesting that one of their problems is that they start and make Abraham everything. So the conclusion of this story has everything to do with promises made to Abraham, not everything to do with with creation in the covenant at creation. Um, So that's why in dispensational theology, there's this big deal about land promises, finding future fulfillment by ethnic Israel. Well, that's not the end of the biblical story. Uh, The biblical story in the new covenant is a new heaven and new earth, and that connects to the creation covenant. Um, You know, covenant theology, the the idea about what the church is, who God's people are, well, there are these genealogical principles from Abraham that are looked at at the the end of the story. Well, we don't baptize babies. We um, don't look at the Abraham story as the end of the story. We want to look at uh, the parallels between covenant, creation, and then the end of the new covenant. Incidentally, I'll talk about this along the way. Generally, when we talk about new covenant and old covenant, um, we're, we're contrasting new covenant with old covenant. And that's mostly right, but new covenant actually contrasts even further back to uh, creation covenant and Noahic covenant. And so there's a, there's a continuity between the covenants that isn't just from Abraham to the new, but uh, creation all the way to the new. Um, <clears throat> so let's, let's start here with evidence for a covenant at creation. A lot of people will suggest there isn't a covenant at creation because the word covenant doesn't appear in the creation account. So the first appearance of the word covenant is in Genesis 6:18, where God tells Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. Um, so because it doesn't appear till there, very often it's that there is no covenant earlier than that. Uh, but I think that there, there might be. So here are some reasons to think about this. Number one, I think that we could say that a covenant is conceptually present, even if the terminology isn't present. Um, And the best proof for this is the Davidic covenant. So in the text describing the Davidic covenant when it's made with David um, in in 2 Samuel and 2 Chronicles, or 1 Chronicles, sorry, the, the word covenant doesn't appear. But later on, David talks about the covenant that the Lord made with him. And so that's a really good example of when a covenant is made, but covenant terminology is absent. Um, So just because the word is absent doesn't mean that a covenant is absent. This guy, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, Jeffrey Niehaus, Niehaus, I I don't know how you say it, Niehaus. Okay, we'll follow Jenny's uh, pronunciation. I don't know how to say it, but this guy says, when a covenant is reported in biblical narrative, the report need not include certain technical elements, such as a recorded oath or a ratification ceremony, or even the very term covenant, in order for the narrative of the institution of the relationship to be a narrative of a covenant's first appearance. So he goes on to say, covenant can be present in Genesis 1 through 3. Um, So that objection out of the way, Let's consider other evidences for a a creation covenant. I think there are possible intercanonical references. So when I say intercanonical, I just mean within the Bible. Maybe I should have said interbiblical. That would have been more clear, but um, there are references perhaps to the 
covenant and creation in the Bible. So the first one is in Hosea 6. You might want to turn there because it might help you to put your, your eyes on this. Um, Hosea 6, 7, there's a reference to a covenant that's being broken. So there's this indictment against Ephraim and Judah. And in verse 7, it says, But they, like Adam, have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. Um, so pri- previous to that, verse 6, it says, For I desire faithful love. So if you remember from last week, has said faithful love. That's that covenant terminology. So there's, you know, God wants this covenant to exist. Um, uh, so I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So you have this piece of knowledge that echoes with language of the creation account in the fall uh, pertaining to the, knol- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and then you have this reference to these people like Adam. They violated the covenant there. They have betrayed me. Um, but it's not clear-cut still, and this is why it's not clear-cut. Here's the evidence against it. There's a location, Adam, that's referenced in Joshua 3.16. Um, so people will read this and say, well, it says, like Adam, they violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. So there's this idea that there indicates that Adam is not a person. It's a place. Um, but I don't think that's convincing because the place Adam is only talked about positively. Um, it's talked about in this account of the moving of the Ark of the Covenant. Nothing negative happened there, and there's no record of individuals breaking God's covenant there. So I don't think that that's convincing. I think it's better to say that there in verse 7 is a reference to the locations listed in verses 8 and 9 and 10. Um, however, even with clearing up that, it's still not clear because... The word Adam is also the word for humanity. So in Genesis, um, this is the confusing thing. In Hebrew, Adam can mean either humanity as a whole or Adam the person. So, so even there, it might just be a general statement. Like all of humanity, um, they violated my covenant. So that might be the case as well. And I was looking at this uh, this morning. And there, you know, the Greek translation of the Old Testament I think is kind of like the first commentary on the Hebrew Bible, maybe. And they use the word uh, anthropos, which is just a general word for man when they translate Hosea 6-7. So maybe earlier readers thought this wasn't the person Adam. Uh, but that's also not conclusive because there are a bunch of editions of the Greek Old Testament. So um, I don't know how much weight to put in that. Uh, but then uh, the other problem here is I looked up where else in the Bible does this phrase as Adam or like Adam show up? And it only shows up twice in the Bible. The other time is in Job 31. And there Job laments that he's, uh, he has not covered transgression or he's not hidden his sin like Adam. Um, once again, there's no clarity there, right? It could either be like all of mankind or it, or it could be like the person Adam. Now, I think that perhaps we could say that Adam is in view there uh, because what did Adam do after he sinned and broke the covenant? If there's a covenant there, he hid, right? And so there's this language of hiding that's reminiscent of, of the garden language in Job as well. It's still not clear. Um, perhaps the most convincing case to say that this should be like Adam is that when Paul writes in Romans 15:4, there's a reference to the lack the likeness of Adam's transgression. In there, Adam really is in view. And so I think 
it's not clear cut. I would like it to be. When I first stumbled across this verse a couple years ago, I was like, okay, here's definitive proof for a covenant of creation. Why, cause, why are people not talking about this? Well, they are, but they're just pointing out all of the holes in that, that idea in logic. Um, so with that inner biblical connection, it might be, it might not be. I, I tend to think that it is. Um, second, in a more obscure text, Yahweh, this is that covenantal name for God, grounds his covenant with Israel in his covenantal relationship with creation in Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36. So if you, if you read that text, um, he says something like, uh, the, the gist of it is, you can trust that this new covenant is going to happen because of the way that I've related to creation. Um, you know, I've sustained the sun and the moon and all of these things. So there's this idea of a covenantal relationship between God and creation. So those are two inner biblical references, potentially. Third, in the New Testament, especially Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Adam and Christ are both pictured as covenant representatives. And so at least in the way Paul talks about it, he shows Adam is the head of one covenant and Jesus is the head of another covenant. Um, so within the Bible, there are vague references to this covenant at creation, but it's not clear cut. Though I wish it could be. It, it doesn't have to be, but um, I think it works really nicely, so maybe we can at least think of it that way, even if it's not the case. Uh, but there are more evidences that, that maybe would tip in that direction. Um, n well, let me pause there. Any questions on those first two pieces? The wording isn't present, but the idea is present, and then maybe it shows up in other texts. All right. It's not as clear. We kind of wish there was a psalm. Like, we kind of wish in Psalm 8, you know, like in the psalm, David references the covenant the Lord made with him. It would have been nice if in Psalm 8 he said, you know, the covenant, you know, what is man in the covenant that you've made with him when you made him a little lower than the... He doesn't say that, but uh, maybe, maybe we wish he did. Yep. Yeah. Good catch. In the I think in a first in the early paragraphs in the notes I said something like this is different than the covenant theology's idea of a covenant at creation or a covenant of works. So remember covenant theology has the eternal covenant, covenant of works, covenant of grace. These are theologically construed covenants and it's considered this time period where if Adam had obeyed perfectly he would have earned eternal life. That, that's the, you know, not very articulate way of saying what they're saying. This is not that. This is to say this is God's relationship with a, a particular people um, that's covenantal. Um, well, and that will become more clear. It's not as if this is a covenant of works of, of covenant theology. It's a good question. Um, and it's complicated. That's, a, that's one of the confusing things about covenant theology. They talk about covenants, but they're theologically construed covenants. They're not the covenants that appear in the Bible. Um, they, they subsume those covenants to these theological covenants. All right, number three, covenants in non-redemptive contexts. Uh, so some people will say you can't have a covenant at creation because you only need a covenant if there's been sin. Um, it's the, the purpose of the covenant is to redeem. Um, but when we looked at covenants last week, that wasn't the focus of covenants. The, co the focus of covenants is to create a kinship relationship um, and in the Bible to express God's kingship. So 
Are there any covenants that show up in non-redemptive contexts in the Bible? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, marriage is described there, and it's just widely, uh, it's not disputed that marriage is a covenantal relationship. So you do have covenantal relationships in non-redemptive contexts. But the other side of that is um, this is a human-to-human covenant, not a divine human covenant. So if if there is a covenant at creation, that's the first divine human covenant and the only one in a non-redemptive context. So even this doesn't you know, give us all the evidence that we'd want, but we can at least say covenants do appear in pre-sin context. Number four, uh, we could look at the Noahic covenant terminology. So last week I told you that the standard language for um, making a covenant for the first time is the language of to cut a covenant. Um, And then if you're going to renew that covenant or reestablish it, you would say establish it or the the Hebrew word hakim. Okay, not that that matters, but that's what you have to look at because the English word establish is confusing. Um, If you go to a building, you know, and etched in the brick on the corner, it'll say established, you know, 1956 or whatever. I think that's when Target was started. Um, I don't know. But established could think, you know, talk about something being started for the first time in English. But the, the word that's translated that way from the Hebrew is actually a renewal, or it's, it's more literally caused to stand. Um, and this shows up in a bunch of contexts in the, in the Bible, and it's always to make firm something that previously existed. Uh, so when, <clears throat> when the first term covenant appears in Genesis 6.18, it doesn't show up with God saying to Noah, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. It's I'm going to cause to stand my covenant with you. And so that would indicate to us that there's already a covenant in existence. And where might this covenant show up? Well, that's the question, which, where, where, which covenant is being referred to. And there are really three options. One option is that not recorded in the text, God spoke to Noah after, you know, recognizing that he's righteous and perhaps God made a covenant with him off screen. And then here he says, I'm going to cause that covenant to stand. Uh, that's one option. And that would explain why Noah made a sacrifice as soon as he got off the altar. That would explain why there's no questioning of why he needs to bring clean animals in, you know, why he would even have that category. So perhaps there was a covenant made with Noah and his family that's just off script. The other option is that God made a covenant with Adam and Eve when he expelled them from the garden. So I was reading this guy, he had a book released this month uh, called Covenant, and it's about covenant as the framework for the Bible. He just puts them together in a different way than Gentry and Wellam, this guy Daniel Block. And he suggests that God made a covenant with Adam and Eve when he sent them out of the garden. And um, perhaps the clothing of Adam and Eve was with this animal that was sacrificed as part of a covenant ritual or something like that. I'm not very convinced of that, but it's possible. Um, And then in Genesis 1 and 2, this would be the other option, that God made a covenant with all of humanity and with all of creation. I think that that one's the most likely because everything that's described about Noah in Noah, not Noah 9, in Genesis 9, is it parallels with Adam. Everything's the same. He's supposed to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He's a gardener. There are all these parallels that we'll consider next week. So I think the most natural conclusion is that if a covenant is in view, it's one that parallels with anything that's described with Noah. And and so it would really have to take place at creation. Any questions on that one? 
Okay, great. We'll talk about that more next week. I think the reason the word covenant appears for the first time and the emphasis on covenant shows up for the first time in Genesis 6 is that prior to that, there was really no reason to doubt that God was going to maintain faithfulness to his creational purposes, right? Because even when he puts a curse on the ground and expels Adam and Eve, he gives them words of comfort and promise, right, in Genesis 3.15. But now we're at a point in Genesis 6 where God is about to say, I'm going to destroy the planet. And so you need words of comfort and assurance. And so it makes sense that a covenant would be referenced explicitly there because the covenant would be called into question explicitly by these, you know, this instruction to build an ark because the, the world will be destroyed. We'll, we'll talk about that next week when we look at the covenant made with Noah. Um, another argument for the covenant at creation, and I think this is one of the stronger ones, is that there's the presence of God's covenantal name in Genesis 2. So if you, are, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, if you read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4a, the first half of verse 4, you get one telling of a creation account. And then in, in Genesis 2, 4b through Genesis 2, 24, I think that's the last verse, of Genesis, you get another telling of the creation account. In the first one, just a general name for God is used. In the second one, so Elohim or, or just God in our English translations, in chapter 2, God's covenantal name is used. So you see uh, Lord God, Lord all caps being Yahweh, that you know four-letter word. We don't, we don't know what the vowels are. We don't know how to pronounce it, um, but Yahweh probably is the right way to pronounce it. Um, you have Lord God that appears, and it gives this idea that the covenantal Lord is in view. And so what's happening here is in Genesis 1, Moses is writing this creation account to people who grew up in Egypt and who have only heard Egyptian creation myths. And he's trying to say their gods did not create the, the world. There was one creator God. And then in chapter 2, he equates that creator God with their covenantal God. Um, So you have to remember, you know, if Moses is writing Genesis, he's writing it not in an isolated way. Um, He's writing it in connection and for this new covenantal people of God. So when they hear, you know, Elohim Yahweh, Lord God, they're, they're thinking, oh, our covenantal God is the creator. And so Moses doesn't need to explicitly say that there's a covenant there because there's a covenantal God there. And I think that they would start to draw correspondences between Adam and Eve and Israel. Uh, We'll talk in a minute about the sonship language for Adam. Adam was a son of God. Well, Israel is said to be the firstborn son of God. And then you have correspondences between the garden and the promised land. So I think Israel's reading this. In, in, you know, the long oral tradition, however that worked out, and they're hearing our covenant God is the, is the one who related to Adam and Eve. And so I think it would just be implied that a covenant is in view at creation. Comments or questions on that one? I, th- I think that's maybe the most convincing argument. Okay, number six then, uh, there's the presence of expected covenantal elements. So everything that you would expect for a covenant to take place is present in the garden. So here's the listing. There are covenant partners, Yahweh Elohim, that's Lord God, that covenantal name, and Adam and Eve, and creation. And I think it's important to add creation as one of the covenant partners because that will show up in the Noahic covenant. 
God does, we, we call it the Noahic covenant, but when we look at the text, God covenants with Noah and his family and all of creation. Every creature on creation, the, the whole planet, the, the luminaries, the sun and the moon, all of that's included in this Noahic covenant. And these are all, I think, covenant partners at creation. Uh, covenant stipulations. Do not eat from the tree. Um, and, and I think that this is likely representative of a place of the covenantal meal. We can't get into that. That's all speculation, but I think it's interesting speculation. Um, if you ever want to talk about that, I'd be happy to. But there are these stipulations, don't eat from the tree. And I don't think it's a don't ever eat from the tree. You know, s- sometimes we ask, why, why did God put a tree in there that they can't have? Well, I think they can eat with God. Um, instead, they, they eat with the serpent. So there's a violating of that covenant uh, with a different covenant partner. Um, but, but I think, you know, there, there are other things to say about that. When, when you look at the, when you read that text slowly, you see how when God provides food for them, he says, I give you from every seed-bearing fruit tree, all of these things. There's so much that God has given them. Um, but we do wonder, what was God doing in putting one tree that they couldn't eat from? Well, I think that it's reserved for covenantal purposes. Uh, there are blessings for obedience, life, God's presence in the garden with them, um, rulership in the garden and ultimately across the world as they expand, um, and provision of food. There are blessings for obedience. And then there's curse for death or, or curses for disobedience, which is death. That's the primary curse there. Um, and death includes separation from God's presence, Exile from the land, we might say. We'll, we'll hear hints of this in covenants with Israel. And then there's a kinship relationship that's formed. Humanity was made in God's image and according to his likeness. I'll talk about that more in a second. But all of the elements that you would need for a covenant and all that you would expect there to be are there. All right, comments or questions on, on those pieces? Yeah, I I think they are features that you would expect to be in a covenantal situation. Um, everywhere else in the Bible, when you see God making covenants, these features are here, either explicitly or implied. There there are stipulations, obligations. There there are blessings for obedience, curse for disobedience. Everywhere that we'll see this, that that's what's going to show up, even in covenants that we might say are you know unconditional. Look at the, we'll look at the Noahic covenant, and, and there are obligations for humanity to take on. We'll look at the Davidic covenant. There are obligations for David's offspring to take on. Um, and as these covenants progress, they're couched within other covenants that have obligations you know, connected to them. So the Davidic covenant, um, these are kings of Israel. And in the old covenant legislation, there are instructions that kings must follow. In Deuteronomy 18, right? So even there, there are obligations in the most unconditional of covenants. But whatever, whenever we see a covenant, these sort of features show up. All right. Uh, let's talk about kingship and kinship by covenant. So we're, you know, I've talked a lot about this book, Kingdom Through Covenant, and then last week, Kinship Through Covenant. Both of these ideas are present here. Uh, Genesis records... Uh, creation is coming through a divine pattern of commands and immediate fulfillment. Ultimately, it's showing that God is the king of creation. He speaks, everything obeys, everything comes into place. 
Um, and I think it's notable that God creates in Genesis 1, in this description, you know, the Bible has multiple creation accounts and talks about creation in multiple ways. And so I don't think we need to be beholden to making one, the one account of creation. I think of Genesis or John 1, 1, where now you get a Christological creation account and Colossians 1, you have these other ideas. And so you want to try to pick up on what are the nuances of the individual accounts that are given to us, because they're communicating something really, really helpful. And I think one of the ones, if, you're, if you, like me, believe Mo- Moses wrote the Pentateuch, well, he's structuring this Genesis 1 account in a way where God speaks 10 words because there's going to be another covenant that has legislation that comes about in 10 words. And we call that the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And, and just as God is king of creation and all of creation exists by his 10 words, God is the king of Israel and they'll only exist by his 10 words. Um, So these things show up, but God is portrayed as the king over all creation. Now, when we read this as perhaps Moses' cultural context would have in the ancient Near East, uh, the gods, you know, they'd create the world uh, in, you know, pretty gross ways, but then um, they would appoint humans in the world to rule on their behalf. And these humans were the king or the pharaoh. They were called the sons of the gods the son of the God, um, and then, or the image of the God, and then these images of the God uh, would set up statues of themselves that would be reflective of their presence, and then wherever those statues were set up, it marked it off as this is this particular God's territory, and then that nation would go to war against another one or another city and wipe out their gods, and you'd say, our gods conquered through us, and now we've taken over a, a larger stretch of territory. Uh, but the rulers were looked at as exercising rulership on behalf of the God in that God's domain. Well, in the creation account, the creator God, the ultimate king, uh, created domains and then put sub-rulers or vice-regents, we might say, in those domains. So on day one, light and dark, well, he set up the creature kings of the sun and the moon in day four. And you might, because we're not taking the time to look at these texts, you might doubt that. But it's interesting that God says that he's appointing the sun to rule over the day and the moon to rule over the night. Well, this is the kind of language that we see on day six with humanity as well. But there are domains that are created and then there are creature kings that are established. You have seas and atmosphere, then sea creatures and the birds. And there, the language of ruling isn't picked up, but the language of being fruitful and multiplying and filling your domain is picked up. And these things are brought together on day, on day six with humans, but filling the domain of, of land. Uh, so throughout, there's this kind of retelling of ancient Near Eastern mythology with the true God and the true king. And um, on day six, it climaxes with that king creating his image. Um, and this, this mirrors the language of the ancient Near East, images of the God. The difference is that all of humanity is created as God's image, not just the king. Um, and so that's significant. And there's only one God. That's, that's also maybe even more significant. Uh, so instead of multiple gods and one singular image of those gods, uh, you have one God in multiple image bearers. Now, when we get to this idea of humanity as the divine image, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And those two terms are somewhat synonymous, but the term image connotes rulership and royal status. So when we look at 
Akkadian and some of these other cognate languages, uh, we see these distinctions. Image relates to royal status or kingship, and then likeness relates to sonship. Um, so you have a son king, and, and that fits very well with the ancient Near Eastern way of looking at these things, uh, but it's reshaped in the biblical account. Significantly, the New Testament authors will pick up the language of royalty and sonship as part of Jesus' renewing work and a part of God's people. So as early as Israel, you're my firstborn son, and you will be a royal priesthood or a kingly priesthood. And then that's said of the church later on. In Hebrews, Jesus is talked about that way. And so the beginnings of the redemptive story really start in, in these words here. Um, we could add to that, we don't have time, but there's also this idea that the garden is this temple for God's dwelling place. And Adam is commissioned as a priest. And, and that language gets picked picked up on in the rest of the covenants as well. Um, so when Adam is told, I think it's Genesis 2.15, to uh, work and keep the garden, that's the only time those two words show up again in the Bible. It's with references to the priest doing that for the temple. So th this is a long thing that we can't get into. I, I think it's helpful, but you start seeing this priest and king and son um, offices, really, that then are fulfilled in various ways throughout the covenants. Um, I could talk about this forever because this is my area of study, and so I had to work really hard not to uh, say anything else. But any questions that you have, I would love to talk about. Yeah, it, yeah, read mythology, read Egyptian mythology to start with, and you'll see the way that Moses corrects some of these bad views. Because we hear these texts in terms of Charles Darwin, maybe, or someone like that. We need to hear it in terms of uh, the, the ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. And then read other mythology, you know, uh, Norse mythology even. You have um, these guys who are called the sons of Odin. You know, like there, there are these ideas that get carried out across cultures. Uh, so it's not just in the ancient Near East, but it's interesting how the Bible sets forward a different story. So what kind of covenant is this? Um, well, like I said last week, we can't neatly classify them, uh, but the features of the suzerain vassal in the, the royal grant covenants are best on display, where there's this great king and client kings, a land grant, you know, this domain has been given. Um, so both of those things are in view, but also remember that the, the idea of sonship is in view here. In, in Genesis 5, Adam is pictured as a son of God, and so there's this kinship uh, by covenant that's made there as well. The covenant is obviously breached. It's broken. The stipulations are violated as the serpent is um, meeting with Adam and Eve at the tree. And I, again, I think this is a covenantal meal location, and they share that meal not with their covenantal God, but with this serpent who seeks to overthrow that God. And what were they supposed to do? Well, Adam was charged to guard the garden. Um, he needed to, when that serpent came in, he needed to crush the head of the serpent, and he failed to do that. That did not happen. Um, incidentally, the fact that Adam is charged with guarding the garden helps us think about the creation account a little bit differently. For all things to be created good does not mean that they were beyond improvement. Adam was to improve on the good creation. It was not perfect, um, and he, he didn't improve upon it. He, he allowed it to become worse is the serpent um, 
won that, that battle there. Um, and then the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman becomes a major theme in the Bible because in Genesis 3.15, um, God promises that a seed or an offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And uh, that theme comes to conclusion in Jesus in the church. Um, you know, Romans 16.20, this is one of my favorite verses, where the, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Then you have this imagery in, in Revelation 12. And when Jesus speaks to the, the Pharisees, he calls them a brood of vipers. You have all of these, this major theme that, that comes throughout. Um, but even in the breach of the covenant, we see the mercy and grace of God. Um, as as there's, there are two gifts that are given, I'll use the phrase that I like to re- use to mitigate the curse of death. Um, Michelle is sort of making fun of me for using that phrase so often. But, but when God pronounced death on these people, he also mitigated that curse by giving them two life-giving realities. One, they would have children. Um, so, so you'll have life, even though there's going to be death. And uh, even though I'm cursing the ground, you can still grow food that will be life-giving. Um, and so these two things nourish and sustain humanity. But then read Genesis, and there's, there are the genealogies, and over and over again, there's that refrain, and he died. Um, and, and I think even Enoch, you know, it says he was taken or something like that. I think that's just a, a nice way of saying he died. He died uh, full of years, we might say, in, in righteousness or something. Um, but but death, death comes as a result of the breach of the covenant. Um, we have to keep moving here. Uh, throughout the Bible, though, there are references to this particularly um, as we look, well, okay, I put this chart here of Cain and Adam. We talked about typology. Now we start looking for the seed of the woman. We're looking for an Adam-like figure who will do what Adam doesn't do. Well, Cain is the firstborn son, and when Cain is tempted to sin, his offering's been rejected, God tells him that sin will be crouching for you. That's the language of the serpent, and he needs to dominate it. He needs to crush it. So sin is like a if, if the serpent is personified sin or Satan, sin is a depersonified Satan, and, and Cain needs to crush that. He needs to be a new and better Adam. He, of course, fails to do that. But there, you, when you start reading the story, you think, oh, we have a new worker of the ground. We have a new Adam, and he fails. And so then we keep looking for the seed of the woman. We keep looking for another Adam-like figure. Other Adam-like figures emerge. Noah will consider next week, uh, though he, he was not much of a better Adam-like figure. The resolution ultimately comes in Jesus. Now, I want to just draw a bunch of parallels between Adam and Jesus. All except for one of these are very clearly textually rooted. There's one that I think is a stretch that I'm not convinced about, and there are more that we could make. Adam's pictured as the Son of God. Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Um, And then in Luke, Jesus is listed as the heir of Adam, the Son of God, but actually it's more literally the one of God. Uh, But our English translations say Son of God, so we'll roll with that. Um, Adam's offspring are made in his image and likeness. Uh, The Messiah's offspring in Isaiah 53, he'll have offspring. And then Romans and 1 Corinthians talk about the fact that they're being remade into his image. Adam was the reflective or representative image of God. Jesus is the exact image of God. Adam is depicted as a gardener. Jesus is mistaken for a gardener um, by the women in, in John 20. Adam and Eve accepted the serpent's offer in the garden. Jesus resisted Satan's offer in the wilderness. Adam introduces the reign of death. Jesus introduces the reign of life. Adam uh, subject, subjected creation to futility, to the curse. Jesus removes the curse and renews creation. 
Adam's Bride was formed. This is a stretch, okay? I, I posted a my chart on Facebook to see if there was anything I needed to add, and someone suggested this one, and I'm not convinced, but I put it in here. Adam's Bride was formed from his side, and he said Jesus' side was wounded for his bride. That's where I think the stretch is. What's not the stretch is that Adam was resurrected from asleep, um, you know, following the creation of his bride, and Jesus was raised from, the, from asleep as well. I think there may be stretches there, but it's interesting. Adam, the dustly man, was given life. Jesus, the heavenly man, gives life. I think this is, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, where you have Adam who, be, who was given the breath of life. And if you're just reading it quickly, you, don't, you might not see the contrast, but instead of receiving life, the new Adam now gives life. He becomes a life-giving spirit. So where God breathed into Adam the breath of life, now Jesus is a life-giving spirit. Um, Adam failingly exercised kingship over the creation and garden, um, and then Jesus perfectly exercised kingship over all things. There are way more parallels in the Bible. I tried to stick with the ones where the biblical authors are drawing parallels, so that way I'm not stretching it you know, beyond reason. We could find many, many more. But Jesus is pictured as the new covenant community head in contrast to Adam, who is the old covenant community head. Way, way old, older than the, the Mosaic covenant. I think it's significant that Jesus is contrasted in the New Testament not with Abraham, but with Adam. And there are times where he's contrasted with Moses in Hebrews in that sermon, of course, but most significantly, um, where Paul could have, you know, I've just been reading Romans a lot this week. Paul talks a lot about Abraham and his offspring, and he could have contrasted Jesus with Abraham, but he doesn't. In Romans 5, he contrasts him with Adam, and we need to go all the way back there for the beginning of the story. Um, so we need to track that. It's, it's ground zero. This guy who I'm reading, Daniel Block, talks about co the covenant of creation receding into the background as if it doesn't matter anymore. I think it's, we could say it's the foreground. It, it sets everything up that follows. It doesn't leave our view. Everything that comes is an outworking of this covenant with creation. Um, we'll see the significance of this now every week as we look at different covenants where there are reflections backwards, but we have to lay this groundwork. Um, and next week, we'll consider God's covenant with Noah. Well, I finished three minutes early, so that way we can have any time for discussion or question. Michelle. Okay. Yeah, th that whole section... Yeah, you said it's <laughs> resigned to Google. Well, I didn't put any footnotes there because I wanted to keep it short uh, because from other studies, that's, there's so much out there. I, I would suggest um, this guy, Daniel Block, who I just criticized for saying creation recedes into or, you know, the background. He has a book on ancient Near Eastern gods and Israel. I, I forget the title of it. Um, I, I, I'm thinking of it because I just bought it. Uh, let me pull it up here. Um, it's, I think it's really good. Um, here we go. The Gods of the Nations, a study in ancient Near Eastern national theology. That would be a good one. Um, in that book by T. Desmond Alexander from uh, Eden to the New Jerusalem, he talks about this and has good footnotes. Um, and then you can just buy whole Egyptian mythologies. Um, I've got a couple, but it might take me a little while to look them up. But they were purchased on Amazon, so you can always do that. I can send you the links if you're interested. Yep, good. Any other questions?
Okay. Yeah, he does. Yeah, and I can't recall. I don't. Is that the John text? Um, in in John, you know, John is the one who who emphasizes Jesus's side, right after he talks about Jesus' mistaken identity as a gardener. So that's where there's maybe some connection there. But you're right; he does breathe on them. I don't think that's actually giving of the spirit. I think it's you know just. Uh, uh, sign of something to be but you're right and John is the one out of anyone who could include imagery it's him I mean he's the guy who wrote Revelation as well and there are so many Old Testament images that are picked up there and then um, one one other note that we'll talk about down the road uh, what what did uh, the the women see when they they came to the tomb well there were two angels on either side of the empty tomb and what, what does the Ark of the Covenant look like where God's presence is, you know, connected? Well, you have two angels on either side. John does these sorts of things, or he, without telling you, uses Old Testament imagery. So, Tim, that's a good catch. He, he may be doing that there. <laughs>